If you have Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, continuing on with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. My name's Ashley, if we don't know one another. Um, I'm one of the pastors at Trinity over on the west side most often, uh, doing education, and thrilled to get to be here with you all to um, to keep going with what are, um, you know, undoubtedly some of the most uh, brilliant uh, words maybe ever uttered by a human which I don't think is too strong of an endorsement. This sermon from Jesus continues to shape and impact and inform um, not just the life of the church, but um, life for all people across all places. So we're going to sit with these, um, albeit challenging words from Jesus this morning, and pray to see what he has for us. Jesus says, verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you will be liable to the hell of of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, that anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy Spirit, there is more here than we could possibly, Lord, begin to do justice to or explain all at one time. So in these next few moments, Lord, where you have gathered us, we believe to yourself to speak words of life and healing, grace over us. I pray, Lord, that that is exactly how we would receive you and hear you, that our hearts would be postured, Lord, towards you, to trust you. You, Lord, are our good teacher. And these words, Lord, are living words. They, they do more. They are able of doing more than we know how to ask or imagine. And so I pray, Lord, that 
that would be true this morning, that they would move in us, Lord. Find fertile ground, Lord, in our hearts and in our lives to bring the kingdom of heaven. We ask you, Lord, for greater righteousness. The kind of Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this morning, we get to talk about anger, adultery, and divorce, all in about 20 minutes, <laughs> which is probably not possible um, to do to any satisfying degree anyway. So here's, here's what I want to say firstly. Um, I think that what I was saying before are true. I think that these, um, this moment actually in Jesus' life and ministry demonstrates him doing what he does best. Jesus was a brilliant thinker and teacher. Um, he, of course, also is the very heart of God. And so there is so much grace and so much life in these words, albeit as challenging as they are. And in many ways, for a lot of us, hard to hear, to know what to do with. And so I just want to say to you that that is also true for me. I stand in this moment, you know, up here and um, in, in some ways in, in a different place. But ultimately, I, um, I stand, sit alongside you as someone who has to try to put my life in the very same way under these words of Jesus and be formed by them be impacted by them. So it's like with a, a certain amount of fear and trembling, I think that anybody sets out to explain or make sense of what it is that Jesus is saying. Um, so that being said, this morning is an invitation, I believe, from the Lord to sit with something that's challenging and hard to hear. And I hope also for you that there is a great deal of, of life in it. Um, in order to make sense of what Jesus is doing, I think you have to back up to the verses that come immediately before it, the ones that we taught on last week. If you were here at Trinity Now for several weeks, we've been in this sermon. And the verses that immediately precede this passage are the ones when Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And unless your righteousness exceeds or is greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus goes on to give like six examples from the law. Ways in which the Pharisees had called people to demonstrate righteousness. So in effect, what Jesus is doing in these next several verses is that he's contrasting two ways of thinking about or attempting to do or be righteous. There's a kind of skin-deep pharisaical righteousness that Jesus saw on full display in the religious leaders of his day. Like literally where we get the word pharisaical. Jesus looked out at the Pharisees and saw in them a, a sort of distorted um, approach to righteousness. One that was outwardly focused, seemingly um, had a disproportionate attention on ways in which I can uh, make sure that I am outwardly submitted to the law. In short, a legalistic approach to righteousness. And what Jesus is calling those who are listening to him, his disciples to, is to say, okay, well, there's that over here on the one hand. That's one way of attempting to fulfill the law. And then there's this, what he calls greater righteousness, something that is other than that. I believe deeper than that. Something that isn't just disproportionately concerned with what happens on the outside but a kind of righteousness that would have its source with an internal alignment. 
something that begins in my inmost place. Jesus will talk about this over and over and over again. Um, He says later in chapter 23, as an accusation against the Pharisees, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Yikes. In other words, something is wrong at the core. Something is misaligned or not as it should be. And this greater righteousness, whatever it is, that's where it starts. It's an internal transformation. Something, some part of me, my inmost place, that is aligned with the deep desires and the deep heart of God that then manifests itself in the life that I live. And Jesus says those are two very different ways of going about trying to, like, fulfill the law and do righteousness. So then he gives us these six examples. And I just want to say, you know, every time I I read these texts, I feel compelled to remind myself and to point out what Jesus is getting at is ultimately about more than just not being a hypocrite. (laughs) You know, like, if this were a sermon where I was just going to say to you, now Christians— you know, just don't be hypocrites. If you're going to believe it, you got to really do it. Here's, here's the thing. I think that what Jesus is getting at is ultimately a lot more complicated, a lot more meaningful than that. Because actually, if my highest aim is just to not be a hypocrite, in other words, just to not appear as someone who believes one thing and does another, then Actually, I've kind of tragically missed the point because ultimately that's still about a sort of outward facing behavior management. I just don't want to come across or seem or appear to be hypocritical, espousing one thing internally and and doing one thing outwardly. What Jesus is saying is, is more than just don't be a hypocrite. What is the opposite of hypocrisy? Integrity. I think Jesus would say it's this greater righteousness. It is a life that is aligned with yourself and with the heart of God. That there is more on offer for you than just not being a hypocrite or not being a murderer or not being a liar or not being an adulterer. That we've been called to greater righteousness, to the likeness of Jesus, to real and abundant life is what he's saying. All right, so he gives us these six examples. And each one begins with, you have heard it said, but now I say to you. It's a really bold move for Jesus to make. Because you have heard it said, he's referring, of course, to the law, to the teaching of the rabbis. Um, And now he's, as if he can, he takes authority over that teaching, over that law. And it should be noted that that's something that really only Jesus can do. Um, like I don't get to read parts of my Bible and when they seem unduly harsh or difficult to me, think, well, you have heard it said, but now I, Ashley, say to you, because I have the advantage of, you know, 2,000 years now of history, and so I have a more evolved and progressive perspective. I don't get to follow Jesus' example that way. Jesus gets to do what Jesus is doing because he is, in fact, the originator, the author, the source of the law itself. He's taking authority over it in a way that only he gets to do. 
And one scholar put it this way, Jesus' commands do not transgress the law, but radicalize it. They go to the radix, the root of the command. He's not calling for a relaxation of the law. In other words, he's calling for a radicalization of it, a deeper understanding, a deeper fidelity to it. And that's important to note because what bothered Jesus about the Pharisees um, was not how seriously they took this whole religion thing. And I sometimes think that that's sort of the rap that they get. They were just too religious. Um, And I guess that's true. If by religious you mean legalistic um, to the exclusion of the deeper and more meaningful parts of faith. But it just what bothered Jesus was not how serious they were about their faith. Jesus himself was also deeply serious. And this matters. I mean, sometimes I think that we have this idea of Jesus as a kind of, you know, just um, easy-go-lucky hippie spirit guru who went around as like a first-century John Lennon type, just telling people, you know, to love and do what felt good to them and be kind. And it's, there's just more to him than that. It's an oversimplification. It actually undermines the real power of his life and who he was. Jesus was a deeply devout man. He prayed three times a day. He fasted. He not only read his Bible, he memorized it. He didn't just keep Torah. He knew it. It was in his bones. And so what he's calling us to is not less than that. It's more than that. Not to just do those things. His beef with the Pharisees is that they did those things to the exclusion of like missing the heart and the point of it. What would happen if we brought our fidelity to those kinds of things, to that expression of faith, if we paired that with the heart of God? What might happen? That's what Jesus is saying. Um, what I find so compelling about him is, in other words, if there's a spectrum in which we're forced to choose between legalistic religiosity over here and this laissez-faire spirituality over here in which everything goes, Jesus is going to resist both of those extremes and call us to something deeper and more meaningful. And so he gives these examples of what that looks like. Anger. He begins with the law's command not to commit murder. You have heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But now I say to you, don't get angry. Now, This is, of course, meant to strike you as impossibly hard. Um, What do you mean, don't get angry? And if it strikes you as immediately sort of bizarre, um, it's supposed to. Jesus is taking a kind of hyperbolic stance um, in teaching these verses. He's trying to, like, point out the kind of ridiculous notion that that would suggest that we can willpower or rule follow our way into obedience. We actually can't do that. Jesus himself got angry. He gets angry at the Pharisees in just a few chapters later. What he's, what he's trying to say is with that anger, what would happen to a person if I was as vigilant about my anger and the fact that I get angry as I was about trying to like not murder or punch somebody in the face? In other words, if the best you can say at the end of your life is, I was a very angry person, but I never killed anybody and I never punched anybody in the face. You got to give me that. I never went to jail for it. I was deeply, deeply angry the whole time, but nobody died. And I think what Jesus is saying is, no, no, no. Whether 
you murder somebody or punch someone in the face or simply curse at someone or you just carry around deep bitterness and resentment. The root is the same. Murder is one fruit. Violence, another fruit. Resentment, another fruit. But the root of all of them is the same. And it's unresolved anger that has not been dealt with, not been healed. And so what I think Jesus is suggesting is what if we were as vigilant in rooting out the anger in our lives as we were about trying to behavior manage? Just make sure, like, you know, I keep my cool and don't knock you out in a board meeting. Like, isn't there more on offer than that? Like you, and I just want to say, you don't need the Spirit of God not to kill people. You don't need the Spirit of God not to do violence to people. Come on, y'all. We are resurrection people. The same Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work in you. What I need the Spirit of God to do in me that I cannot do myself is help me resolve and work through in redemptive ways the anger that I inevitably feel. And that's what's on offer. I can, in fact, do that. I can heal from the things that make me feel angry. Dallas Willard once said that we need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. And I've been thinking this week, what would it look like for me to ruthlessly eliminate violence or a tendency towards violence in my life? I don't physically hurt people. The call of Jesus, though, is to consider in what ways might I harbor violence in smaller, more seemingly benign ways in my heart against other people and the things I might say against them when they're not around, ways that we might cut one another down. What Jesus is saying is, if I have a tendency or a desire to cut you down in your reputation or in how you feel about yourself, how is that different from cutting you physically? Who's to say which is worse? What if we ruthlessly eliminated the tendency towards violence in our lives? What might happen? Similar principle, I think, is at play with what Jesus says about oaths. Um, There were laws against perjury in the ancient world just like there are today. Today, if you lie under oath, you go to jail. You do not go to jail if you lie to your wife or your kids or your friends. So you could live your whole life being a miserable liar and never be punished for it. And I think what Jesus is saying is, like, yeah, but just not going to jail for being a, a, you know, for not having lied under oath. Like maybe there's something else for us to aspire to. Maybe just trying to, we could aim for more than just not getting caught in the way that we lie. You know, like lie smart and just don't get caught. I think what Jesus is saying is there ought to just be in my heart a commitment to being a person of integrity and truth, period. Period. Because my innermost, the springs of my life, as one scholar put it, the innermost springs of my life are flowing from the heart of God. And so I'm not going to tell a lie on the stand when I could go to jail for the same reason. I'm not going to tell a lie when I'm sitting at the dinner table with my family. It's because I, 
I don't. Because my life is connected to the heart of God in both circumstances. And we can think to ourselves, okay, anger, lying, got it. Check, check. We're good on those. I'm not a terribly angry person. I'm not particularly prone to lying. And he just keeps coming. The same is true for lust, he says. Um, Jesus goes on to say, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman or a man in an egalitarian society lustfully has committed adultery in his or her heart. That's harder. And then Jesus goes on to say these very bizarre things like, you know, if I were you, I guess I'd go ahead and dig out my eyeballs and cut off my limbs. So you can make sure that you don't do that. And it's meant to strike you as funny and a little bit ridiculous. Because here's the thing. If I am a lustful person with eyeballs and limbs, I'm still a lustful person when I don't have eyeballs and I don't have limbs. I just can't act it out. But I'm, does that make sense to you? I'm, I'm still a lustful person. What is on offer in Jesus Christ is more than just not being lustful. It is a transformation of who I am at the core. So that I don't have to dig out my eyeballs and start cutting off limbs. Because thanks be to God, Jesus has something to offer me. A way to live a fuller and better life. I want to say a couple of really practical things um, on this point. If you struggle with temptation in this area, congratulations. That means you have a pulse in the 21st century because our culture is totally obsessed with this. Sex is everywhere. You actually cannot get away from it. Have you ever seen that Black Mirror episode where people are confined to those little rooms And every single day, they're forced to watch like 30 seconds of pornographic commercials. If you haven't seen it, you should Netflix Black Mirror and try to find this episode. It's really brutal social commentary, actually. People don't want to see it. And if they look away or try to close their eyes, they lose points in this game of life that they're trying to win. We're inundated. All of us. Every single one of us. And so... With that in mind, if you find yourself acting out sexually or lying or hiding, if you are someone who's regularly looking at pornography, I just want to say to you, this is what's true for all of us, for me, for you. Satan's highest hope for us as a culture is not that we would be addicted to porn. Satan's highest hope for us as a culture is that we would hate ourselves. Because that's what happens when we become so addicted we cannot function, be it to porn or anything else. It always leads to the same result, which is hate towards yourself, self-loathing, and hopelessness. Satan doesn't want you to be addicted to porn. He doesn't care about your addiction to porn. He wants you to hate yourself and to hate each other because he's a murderer. And if you think this is one of those like preacher moments where I'm being overly dramatic, I will just say to you, I've sat at too many kitchen tables 
in too many living rooms listening to people whose lives have been utterly destroyed by sexual sin. Not to say so. I know it's true. I've watched it happen over and over and over again. We have an adversary and an enemy. And thanks be to God, we also have a far greater advocate. You have hope. You are a beloved child of God. And the shame that you feel is not the truest thing about you. Or the ultimate word over your life. Every single week, did you know that in this building, Sex Addicts Anonymous meets here in this church every single week? And in churches all over our city and the country. And I think that the people I know who attend SAA every single week, they are the heroes of my heart and the heroes of heaven. Because they are willing to admit that they need help and to choose life that takes courage, it takes fidelity. We cannot feed on a steady stream of poison and not get sick, y'all. And it just, it takes courage sometimes to just admit I'm sick, I don't feel good. This thing that was supposed to be benign and ultimately not a big deal, it feels now like a big deal. It's costing me a lot. The Lord has given you permission to say that. You don't have to keep pretending that it's not a big deal. It is. It hurts you and it hurts people around you. And you have on offer an invitation to a greater kind of life, a greater hope. That's what Jesus is saying. He goes on from there to say this bit about marriage. Here's the thing I want to say about this marriage and divorce and sex bit. <laughs> I hear people say a lot, you know, or it would seem the sentiment is it's just it's just sex. And you know, that's just sort of a cultural sentiment that we've adopted. What's the big deal? It's just sex. And here's I just want to reflect back to you from someone who has to sit with a lot of hurting people. It's never just sex. When the person you love is having it with someone else. It's never just sex when it's a child and a grown-up. It's never just sex when it's happening to you and you didn't want it to happen to you. It's never just sex. And I think that's what Jesus is giving us permission to say. It's never just sex and it's never just marriage that you are a holy thing. And therefore, what you do with your body is a holy thing. And this thing that we call marriage, also a holy thing. And if our endeavor is just to willpower or rule follow our way into fidelity, we won't. We can't. We're not strong enough. Because it, it's a holy thing. It requires a kind of holy kind of force and power and commitment. So... Marriage is holy. God gave it to us as a good gift, and he means for us to honor and, and keep it as a good gift. In the world that Jesus lived in, 
men could, by virtue of the law, based on this clause that they found in Deuteronomy, they found a way to divorce their wives for any reason. There were rabbis who said you could divorce your wife if she burns your food. Thank God for Jesus. I'm a terrible cook. She burns your food or, or if you just happen to find her suddenly not as attractive as that guy's wife. There are real rabbis. There are real reasons given for divorce. And guess what happens to you in the first century if you're divorced as a woman? You're left utterly destitute. Jesus is calling not just for fidelity. He's calling for justice for those who need it and can advocate for themselves. So we may live in a different world where women aren't exactly destitute or men if they're left um, divorced. But marriage is still holy. And it's something to which God has called us to keep and tend to. And is that easy? No. Does it get miserably, painfully complicated? Yes, it does. But rather than looking for the easiest way out or a way out, Jesus is saying before we look for ways out, what if we asked ourselves, what would it look like or what would it mean? What would it take to stay? Could I stay? Could God work in me and through me to do something I cannot imagine? Because that's ultimately what's being asked of all of us. Is it possible for God in me to do more than I know how to ask or imagine? Now, I will just say, if you are the victim of abuse or adultery or abandonment, the Bible has given you a means and way out. But for the rest of us, there is a call to stay. Which means that it's like I'm challenged by that. I'm provoked by that. Because what God would say to me then is, if it feels and seems impossible to you, then give it to me. Where you feel utterly at your end and incapable of taking the next step to do the thing that needs to be done, then give it to me. I have seen people's lives changed in ways they did not believe. Marriages changed in ways they did not believe. And if we cease to believe that it's possible then ultimately what we're saying is not just with divorce and remarriage or with addiction, but across the board, the Spirit of God wants an opportunity to work in and through your life to demonstrate the strength of his power and who he is. The same Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work in you and through you. And if you feel utterly helpless and at your end, then it is precisely the place where you are meant to say, I cannot do this on my own. Have mercy, God, and help me. Come, Holy Spirit. It's the most faithful prayer we can pray. We have to keep calling on the Spirit together in pursuit of this greater righteousness because that's the thing that people will see and take notice of in us that is unlike anything else in the world. It's a greater good, a greater kind of love, a greater fidelity. Let's stand together if we're able.
Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. I'm Matthew Brown, the parish pastor here at Trinity in Decatur. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ-likeness. And you can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting our website, atltrinity.org. Thank you so much, and God bless you. Have a great week.